I said, well, I am connecting to a lab and I'm going to share STD results with dating sites and it will show whether you match based off the same status or not. But it doesn't show the underlying thing, but you know what you have, they know what they have, and you both had your ID verified. So you are who you say you are, you both took a test, the results came back from the tests on the blockchain, it's accurate and and it's just a really respectful way to tackle a problem. There's a million new cases every day of treatable STDs and the dating sites really aren't doing anything about it and they could make a, a major difference. This is Undiluted, a show about amazing founders who've used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We are Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT and Jeff Orism from FedScout. And on today's show, how a pandemic and a funded pilot turned a passion for data privacy into a company building magical experiences. First uh, recollection of actually uh, doing any type of, of sales was uh, around the age of five. So I was looking in the back of uh, comic books and there was Olympic sales and greeting and you could get prizes or cash. And so you had to call this 800 number. And I remember it was like, call Deb, call Dawn, whatever. And they would send you this, this catalog to go and sell greeting cards and different gifts. And so I got this in the mail. I started going door to door, selling all these different things for greeting cards and, and gifts and just knocking on everybody's door who would open and it really uh and i sold a lot people started buying these greeting cards from me and business cards and these different gifts initially i got the free gifts like a, a rocket launcher or a squirt gun or whatever it was but then i realized i could actually keep it was either 10 or 20 percent of the cash and i started enjoying that a lot more but it didn't stop the olympic gift cards you pretty quickly moved on to bigger and better things I did. I did. So one of the second things, I was looking for more things to sell just around the house. I remember taking my sister around in the red wagon, trying to sell my sister. My neighbors called up my parents. That he's trying to sell his sister. So I had to find something that was actually uh, something that I could transact in. And I found a suitcase in the attic and it was full of magazines. It happened to be Playboy magazines that were in brown wrappers, but I started knocking and selling those door to door. I didn't really have any sales, but I did get some calls to my my parents saying that your five-year-old is walking around the neighborhood with his red cart selling your Playboy magazines with your address on them. So you may want to, to have a conversation with him. From there, it grew. Uh, I started getting into uh, trading stocks once I had enough cash to do that. So I was around 10 years old. My parents uh, opened a brokerage account for me. So I really got into that. I could see anomalies in, in the newspaper. I could look at massive data sets and things would just pop out at me where they looked a little bit out of kilter relative to stock prices. From there, uh, as I was investing, I made some money. I figured I could make a better return by loan sharking. So I went to school, I would loan out money for lunch or for food or for anything anybody wanted to buy. And I charge 100% interest a day. And then I got some friends who would be sort of the collectors that were the bigger kids at the Jewish day school. They weren't really that, that intimidating. I then started selling cigars. So I was probably around 11 or 12. And then I, a friend of mine's uh, brother was a Marine pilot in Southeast Asia. And he was sending my friend these Ferrari foldable sunglasses. And so I saw those and I said, how much do you want for a pair? He's like, get them for 50 cents. I was like, okay, well, what would you sell? He's like, I'll sell it to you for a dollar. 
And I said, can you get, can your brother get more? And he said, sure. And I said, I'd like three cases because <laughs> it was like 50 pairs in a case. And so I bought three cases of these and I was selling them. I was selling them for $20 a pair, these foldable fake Ferrari sunglasses in a leather case. They were really cool. Anyway, I was selling the cigars, loan sharking and the sunglasses. Uh, I got called in the principal's office because of the loan sharking and the cigars. And I was sitting in there. She was, and I started talking to her and talking to her about the cigars and how they were premium quality. And I was able to order them out of the back of a magazine. They didn't check your age. It was Thompson cigars. But anyway, I had these cigars, these sunglasses, loan sharking. She's having these conversations with me about how I can't sell those at school. Nobody's old enough to smoke cigars. Why am I selling them to my friends? The loan sharking, you know, threatening people is not a good thing. And I just kept talking and talking and she called my parents. She gets my mom on the phone and she said, your son is loan sharking. He's selling cigars. He's got these sunglasses. Mom was like, yeah, I'll have a talk with him when he gets home. How did you find out about all this? She said, well, everyone's talking about it in the whole school. And I just bought some cigars for my husband and a pair of the sunglasses. So I just looked at it as a selling opportunity. I didn't look at it as, a, as necessarily a bad thing. And I, th I thought I came out with a win. And, uh, and so then I, I just went from there. So where did all this hustle come from? Growing up without a lot of money, we just didn't have a lot. We had enough to get by, but I wanted things that we didn't really couldn't afford. So I wanted new furniture for my room. And that was probably when I was like 10 or 11. And I wanted nice furniture for my room. <laughs> and so my parents just couldn't do it. My mom said, sure, if you make your own money, you can do it. So I went and bought, uh, it was like American Drew. It was like a very fancy, uh, dark cherry wood furniture set. Sold lots of cards and cigars and everything else I could. And I bought the entire set. So I bought a queen size bed, the headboard, footboard, the dresser, the desk, the mirror, everything, the entire set. So I, it was because I, I wanted to have stuff, but it was really the thrill of the sale and talking somebody into buying something that you're selling. And that excitement about the transaction, that was really the thrilling part to me, not necessarily the money, not necessarily the stuff. It was really getting that sale, but I would only sell things that I believed in. So the passion was always there. People believed in me because it was actually stuff that I wanted or that I would use or I wouldn't sell it. So I was always really honest about that. So how does your passions and interests pivot to tech? I I was always fascinated by the smaller versions of everything. So like those pocket TVs when they first came out, the little Casio pocket TVs and Sony Walkmans and just tech in general before PCs, it was just, I wanted something smaller. And so I, I started reading up on everything that I could. Um, I ended up going to Rice University and taking some classes there. They had these for younger kids. I would take chemistry and microbiology and Greek mythology, you name it, I would take it. But then the movie War Games came out and that was in 1983. And that put me on a path to, wow, there's these computer systems and you could do crazy stuff. You could actually take out the whole world with them. You know, what could, what could I do with these different computer systems or just around fun or games or cracking code? So I wanted to be like the, the guy in war games. And that really put me on a path where I got deep into learning about the hardware and how it was built, actual computers, the circuitry, and it just went from there, really. I, so uh, when I got into college, so I, I went to college when I was 17 and I got a job working as a sales rep for IBM. 
that was the very first class of Windows. It was the very first version of Windows. It was a PS2 computer and it had uh, microservices architecture. It was just absolutely amazing. I learned how to put together the computer, take it apart. But really, I wanted the job because they gave me a free computer and uh, with uh, Prodigy. And so they gave us a modem, they gave us a computer, and I didn't care if I sold any. I ended up being one of the top two sales reps in the country for the college sales reps. So I loved selling the computer. I was just so passionate about the computer. I thought everybody should have one. It was just the coolest thing I had ever seen. And I would sit there all day long logging in with that dial-up modem, super slow. But back then, it was just the the coolest thing. Can you bridge us to 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 now and how you start to get checked and things like that? Sure. So after, while I was in college, just take you through this, this quick journey. So when I was in college, I was looking at anomalies in options uh, on the market. And so I had my IBM computer and I didn't have enough money to play the options that I wanted to play because I thought I should play them a little bigger than I typically did. So I sold the computer that they let me borrow because I had to turn it back in at the end of the year. It had to have the same serial number. I sold the computer. I bought puts on Disney. That was in 1987. The market crashed. I made enough money to pay for all of college and lots of other things. And then I finished college and I was going to retire. I made a huge bet and, and it should have worked out about really short-term options because I was greedy. And that was a huge mistake. And it, the trade went against me because they were too short. If I had bought the longer term options, I would have retired. I had a whole trip planned to Europe for, for years. I was going to go and, and disappear. And it was a whole plan. Ended up losing absolutely everything. Had to sell everything that I owned. I had a nice apartment that I was living in at 19. And I had a Rolex and I had great furniture and great car. And I literally, I hawked everything. And I owed the IRS a bunch of money. I'd made the money the year before. And now it was January. I had to pay them a, a bunch in taxes. I went to my parents and my parents said, I said, I, I lost everything and I don't have enough money to pay the taxes. And my mom said, I thought I taught you better than that. You should have put away the tax portion. We can't help you. So I went back to my empty apartment. And I was sitting in the dark and really had just a moment of clarity. Like I, I can just end it now because it's going to be hard to climb back or I can go get a job and figure it out. So I got a job in a deli and I was working at uh, Jason's deli as an entry level manager. And I did that for, for a couple of years, just working an insane amount of hours. And I didn't want to know about stocks or computers or anything. So I literally stopped everything and put everything aside. I said, I just don't care. I don't want to, I felt nothing and did that. And I was driving one day home from Jason's holding the steering wheel super tight. My knuckles were actually white. I'd lost a lot of weight. I was working over hundred hours a week. And I looked at the sky and I had a vision <laughs> and literally a voice in my head. And it said, you know, that you should be working on wall street. And the next day I got a call from my sister and she said, I was just babysitting a gentleman that you met when you were 11 years old. He's a distant relative. He runs a trading desk. And he wants to know if you'd like a job or if you'd be interested in a job working on a trading desk. And I interviewed with him and that's a, a much longer story, but I interviewed with him. He offered me a job, said, you can start Monday. And I said, well, I have to give two weeks notice. It's the right thing to do. He said, you're never going back to that life. You could start Monday or don't start at all. 
So next thing I'm working on Wall Street at a young age, it was around 21 or 22. And I did that for 22 years. And I just knew that I was supposed to be there. After 22 years on Wall Street, I decided to switch careers and work in innovation for a large real estate company. I wanted to create amazing experiences in which the technology was invisible, like magic. And that's a very long story, but what I realized was creating these cool things, making things happen because of your presence. So doors open or TVs changing or lights changing or really being able to have uh, screens change as you walk through an environment or having different things change within an environment. I realized that's really cool. However, I could get tremendous amounts of data on people. And that made me really uncomfortable as a privacy and security advocate. It would have been cool if there was a technology in which people could share their preferences anonymously across systems. But unfortunately, at the time, every company was focused on collecting as much data as possible on people, harvesting it, scrubbing it, selling it. Companies preferred to collect whatever they could, however they could, and ask for forgiveness later if they cross the line. So I had done some research on an obscure technology called blockchain. Most people were focused on the cryptocurrency aspect, and these were very early adopters. But I was focused on the immutable ledger aspect. I suggested using the technology for title at the real estate company, and I drew out this elaborate plan, but that was shut down really hard. And there was zero interest in the technology or spending on any technology, for that matter, that didn't have an immediate ROI. I was told we sell land, we build buildings, we lease the space, or we sell the aspect. Why in the world would we focus on some random technology that nobody's heard about that won't add anything to the bottom line? Just drop it. But I couldn't get blockchain technology out of my head. I would spend every night and every weekend reading about it. I thought of it like paint, like this beautiful thing that could be used to create some work of art. And I knew it could be used to change the healthcare system, the financial system, possibly the world. I just really wasn't sure how yet. And that was the genesis of Get Checked is how do I create a technology in which I can share derivatives of my data without ever sharing the underlying data to trigger things happening? And blockchain was the key to being able to share your personal data or your private data or your preference data in a way that companies or machines only see the yes, no's that make things happen. So this, this, this podcast is all about how founders have maintained their equity while still building product. And my understanding is that you, you did, you were able to find out have a clever solution here by having an early customer fund a lot of your development. So I'd been laid off from the real estate company as part of a reorg and got a call from an acquaintance that worked for a consulting firm called Elixir. He's, he was actually the U.S. partner and his mother played Mahjong with my mother. And we had many conversations over the years about technology and all kind of random topics. And he said, hey, I heard about the layoff. What are you working on? I said, oh, I've been working on this blockchain idea. And I'm actually building it now. It's like the first time I could ever build it. And he said, what are you building it for? What are you doing with it? And I said, I am connecting to a lab and I'm going to share STD results with dating sites. So it'll basically just show the last 
the date of your last test, and it will show whether you match based off the same status or not. But it doesn't show the underlying thing, but you know what you have. They know what they have. You both went to the same lab. It's a mail-in uh, lab. And you both had your ID verified. So you are who you say you are. You both took a test. The results came back from the tests on the blockchain. It's accurate. And and it's just a really respectful way to tackle a problem. There's a million new cases every day of treatable STDs. And the dating sites really aren't doing anything about it. And they could make a, a major difference. And he said, well, can you do anything for this new thing? Uh, you know, this COVID is out now. And um, he said, we're starting to talk to our clients. And they won't. We want to show really that we can build something from nothing in a short period of time. We do rapid prototyping, rapid design sprints. Can you do something with us where you create something where essentially we're building a, a company and a brand, but it's not real. And we want to be able to show our clients something really cool. So what could you do for COVID? And this was before vaccines, anything like that. I said, I can connect all kinds of systems and show you how you could have this amazing user experience that's really respectful uh, of your employees and their their information. I went on and on about a turnstile opening because you met certain criteria or an elevator or sharing that you like cheese pizza because you showed up at a pizza restaurant or that you're old enough to have a beer. But do they really know need to know my age. Do they need my social security number when I go to the doctor's office? No, they just need to know that I have one and it's valid. But is anything else really their business? No, it's not. And I'm not going to write it on a piece of paper and you don't need to know my wife's name or where she works or my children's names. You just need to know that I have all the answers to everything and you get the red or green yes or no based off the questions that you need answers to. So you should be able to share any of your information, any of your data, any of your assets by your mere presence without revealing the underlying data via biometric, your face, your hand. You could do it with your driver's license. You could do it with your credit card. You could do it with your work ID and no device should be needed on your person. All your data should be able to go anywhere with you. The physical world should be an extension of you. And it could be specific to whatever location you're showing up anywhere in the world and shared how you want and you should have control. So Eric thought I was a bit nuts, but he appreciated the crazy. So they ended up hiring me. I did work on a couple projects as a consultant, but I also was able to build my GitCheck platform and integrate all these different systems together. So what we did was we, I worked with them. They had their design sprint and, and all of the stuff that they do as a consultancy. And what I did was I helped design that app. I was able to connect to a lab company, which is the same one I was going to do STD tests with. So they were doing COVID tests early on. I connected to the employee records, to a desk booking engine, to the hands-free access at the front door, to a temperature scanner that also determine whether you're a current employee or not, to a turnstile, to an elevator. So if you had met the COVID test information, if you had passed a survey, and if you had you were a current employee and passed temperature scan, everything worked magically. You could show, you could book your desk, you could show up hands-free at the front door, 
you could walk up to the turnstile with just your face, which did the final temperature scan and the verification, whether you're an employee or not. The turnstile opened hands-free. The elevator was called to your floor. Everybody had met the same criteria. Right now, the company could not see any of the underlying data. They could just see a global yes, no. And so I was able to prove this out that we can connect all these different systems, have the great user experience. It's even a great user experience if there's no COVID. If I'm walking into a building and I have a cup of coffee in my hand, that's just a better experience, everything just happening. And that's really what we we built for them. They created a whole website around it called Indaba. It showed what we could build. And we built that in roughly eight weeks. And within 12 weeks, we were able to get a website up, some marketing, some branding, the video, everything was amazing. I was able to highlight what GetCheck does with, from the technology standpoint and connections and privacy across all these different systems, made everything agnostic. And they were able to show what they could do as a consultancy, taking something from nothing, creating this cool idea, and then being able to build something so that it was great for their clients. It was great for me. They did pay me a salary while I was there, which was fantastic. I worked on some other projects for them as well as a consultant, but they ended. Up, they took no ownership or rights for Get Checked IP. I marketed to their clients for a period of time, and then we parted ways on incredibly good terms. And I hope to work together with them on the future on any project. Uh, just a really great group of of people. Um, the cool thing about it is a few of the partners invested and get checked at the end of the pilot in the friends and family round. So you've, you've had a basically effectively a funded pilot through Elixir, working closely with a customer to be able to have deep access to user feedback, engagement, to be able to demonstrate a, your proof of concept. Fantastic. Then you take a friends and family round. And my understanding is that you've continued to look for non-dilutive funding. So non-dilutive funding would be ideal, finding a customer. So paid pilots, I don't want to have death by pilot. It's, that's always sad to see great technology company die because they do all these free pilots. SBIR funding is really appealing to me. We were introduced to the concept even from Atlanta Tech Village, which I joined, and they connected me to a group called Inspirelia, which identifies different SBIR opportunities and helps you submit the, the documentation to do that. So they initially recommended us for AFWorks, just a general call, and then that kept getting delayed. And then they reached out on a DOD opportunity and thought we may be a fit. And we did submit for that around securing IoT devices. And so we recommend doing that with blockchain and a obscure technology called Puff Technology. So given the size of the opportunity, it's worth pursuing the opportunity. And the phase one doesn't, to get to the phase one, filling out the paperwork isn't a, a giant amount of time uh, that I need to commit to that. And that's why Inspirelia is a, is a great partner because they really help fill out that paperwork to get to the phase one. Once you get to the phase one, well, then I'm going to have to put some resources onto that. So that's going to take up more time but it's still not an inordinate amount of time. It's really once you get to the phase two where you're really constructing the product, you're really building it, that you really have to expand the team and really dedicate the time. And then the phase three, when it gets commercialization, obviously you're a very different company, right? So I kind of look at it as a great opportunity for slow, steady, methodical growth, but it's not gonna to lead to the explosive growth that some of the commercial opportunities could lead to right now. So it's worth the effort for a longer term effort. It'd be great if they could 
help initiate that explosive growth by operating much more quickly, like the private sector. In fact, doing it faster than the private sector would almost give them a competitive advantage, uh, and it would make people more apt to do these types of things. And I will add for listeners, you had mentioned the AFWERX, the Air Force Open topic, which is 50K for a phase one, but the SBIRs and STTRs by federal mandate can go up to, I want to say 256,000. So it's, I'm not exactly sure, but I've seen them in the 200s. Right. Which is not not enough to run a company on. Well, you're, you're right. No, that would get you one good blockchain programmer. That's, that, that is a, it's definitely not enough. It's enough to write a white paper but it's not enough to run a company. It's not an easy process, but we do look for funding in other ways. So traditional VCs, I was speaking to a lot of them. I'm part of Capital Factory. They were making tons of introductions, but that was really taking up too much of my day. I mean, it's taking six to eight hours. I I spent a couple months on that and those were very unproductive phone calls in terms of just getting money quickly. They'd get to second calls, third calls. A lot of uh, times I felt people were either picking my brain or they were just trying to learn about what Web 3.0 is and blockchain, and they weren't going to open up a checkbook. So I stopped talking to the VCs completely and spent my time building the tech, refining the tech, and then trying to find that first customer. And that, that's really where we are right now is we just found our first uh, paying customer, which we're super excited about in the social. It's a social challenge app, which is pretty cool. And we're talking to different groups in different spaces around cannabis, retail automation, banking, finance, ID verification, and the list is going on and on very quickly. And I would say our first quarter is going to be very good in terms of closing a couple more deals that could lead to much larger opportunities. In the past week, we have had two companies in different spaces, one in the uh, banking space, one in the ID verification space, ask if we're a for sale. And I think we'll see some really interesting conversations going forward just from now that we know there's the interest. I'm excited. We're we're not for sale, but we are open to different creative opportunities. I don't ever want to move away from the Web 3.0 ethos. And as long as I have control, I will ensure that we are not uh, part of the big tech vendor lock-in. We're part of that movement of companies that really open up the ecosystem, allow all systems to act as one, allow people to have more control, but also enterprises to have more control over who they do business with and how they do business. And they're always going with whatever is the best for them and and really keeping that that choice. So what was the value that you got from that that pilot with Elixir in, in whatever sort of quantitative terms you'd like to make? Well, I'd say, first of all, from like an emotional standpoint, just having somebody believe in me and the idea that nobody would even listen to prior was huge. Taking a position at Elixir, I did work on other projects. So, you know, I made it worth their while to work on a couple of consulting projects, but they made it worth my while to come there. They, they like to say they're a firm of entrepreneurs that have all these other outside interests and work on other projects. So they actually were super supportive of me being an entrepreneur, they did not take any equity in Get Checked, but they were very supportive of what Get Checked was doing. And some of the partners individually decided to participate in that friends and family room. I would say 
having the support of their team while I designed it helped me think through having a better product, how to explain the product or at least show the product. That video of showing how the product works is tremendous because oftentimes you have to see it. And if something's just magically happening in the air, it's hard to comprehend. Having that video and having that belief from them was tremendous for me. Um, that did save uh, a fair amount of money in terms of creating a video and creating, connecting all these pieces of the hardware and software, that time and the money behind it to develop all that was was tremendous. I, I can't really quantify it, but it was very valuable and it did make it less necessary to raise more money really quickly. I would say it was great. It was this non-dilutive process that, that took us to another level in showing a demo a good demo of the product and a good demo for a very complex subject is I, I think is tremendous. This is a pretty complex concept. Do you start with the tech? Do you start with the customer discovery? How do you, how does that all evolve? I build the story. I think if you build the tech, it's going to be a crappy product. So you have to build to the story. And if anybody tells you it can't be built, that means that they aren't actually willing to put in the time to figure out how something could be built. So I like those really complex problems. I like the problems that everyone says cannot be solved. I think that somebody who says that is just lazy and saying no to everything is just a lazy person's truth. Uh, that's not mine. So when you first described it, I thought of maybe tenant screenings like TransUnion uses their smart move platform. And I set it up so that the tenant goes and puts their email address and all this information. And I never see it as the landlord. I get a yes, no. I get a, if there's some negative things on the credit or the criminal background check, but I don't, I don't want to see their social security number. I don't want to see their whatever. And they don't have to share it. It's a nice third party way of managing it. So is this, is, I mean, what does this technically look like? Is this an API? You talked about algorithm. This is more than one algorithm. Like, what is this? From a highly technical standpoint, it's that we have a private network where your data is actually stored on a, the blockchain is actually not accessible. The data that's on the blockchain is not accessible via the public internet. It's only accessible via an API. And that API is actually interfacing with smart contracts. So there's smart contract between the API and the data that's actually on the blockchain. So nobody's ever getting to the data that's on the blockchain, which makes it really secure. So you can ask questions against it. That's the if this, then that. That's what the smart contracts are, but only accessible by the API. And back to some of your other points, it does have infinite use cases, especially for HR departments or for uh, fraud prevention. When you're going to, somebody can't go lease 10 apartments and then put them all on Airbnb. You could know from their biometric and all the other things in the unbreakable chain, their driver's license, their financial records, et cetera, that the same person is not going over and over. Same thing for election fraud, one biometric, one human being, one vote, right? It's sharing health records. For HR, it's a very interesting use case that we've actually spoken to people about. So right now, when you go apply for a job, you do a drug screen and you do a health screen and you do a financial screen and you do a job screen, your whole work history. And you sign off when you fill out the application to go work somewhere where they can go look at all this stuff and you have no idea 
what they're seeing or not seeing. And it could be the reason you don't get the job. Really what they should be doing is getting a green check mark or red check mark. You should see the underlying data. They should not see the underlying data. And then you should have the ability to go fix the underlying data because you should know what it is. And right now that's not the case. You just sign and you're like, well, if I don't sign, then I'm not going to get the job. And here's the thing. If I go apply at three other places, I should be able to use that same profile associated with me to go apply for other jobs. And it should have my work history. Why is it that I'm rewriting it every single time I go play, apply for a job? It's not like it changed over the, you know, the stuff from 10 years ago. Right. And now the drug screen will change maybe, um, but some things need to be updated. Some things don't, they just need to be added to. So if I have the history and now I'm on my current job, it should automatically update my profile. Yes, I did work there. And yes, you want to check my compensation history. I don't ever want to write that down again. And the last question on my mind, at least, is I just wanted to ask if, you know, for, for all the people listening, who are you trying to meet? You know, are there people within government? Are there people in other spaces? There's definitely some people on the VC side, which I'm not crazy about VCs, but there's some people that I think could really help us. And so that would be the Peter Thiel, Tim Draper, Mark Andreessen. And then I would love to meet Elon Musk just because he's amazing and a true passion. And it's not necessarily about the money. It's about creating these amazing things and going for broke. So would love to meet him. And then Ryan Reynolds for sure, because he's Deadpool. And then uh, the point of sale systems and the payment processors, I would love to uh, meet them. So like PayPal, Stripe, Clover, Toast, Slice, any of the major banks, any that are looking at doing something in the blockchain space and actually want to move quickly and get something done and not just talk about getting something done or using buzzwords. Um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think we could do a lot around uh, whether it's voter fraud or entitlement programs and ensuring that the right people are getting the right services and we are reducing fraud uh, by connecting all these disparate data sources, but we're doing it in a different way where the citizenry feels more comfortable. We hope you enjoyed this show featuring Michael Kaplowitz from Get Checked. And we know that figuring out federal funding can be complicated. So please visit Undiluted on fedscout.com to hear more founder stories and find guides, checklists, and Q&A forums. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Undiluted.